Welcome to Pastor Potluck. I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. And, and we Gordon. are here with Gordon Pike. Once again, who is joining us. You guys know Gordon. We love Gordon. Today is the extra special show that we've been talking up for, I think, three weeks now. I've been excited about doing it. And today is the Revelation Bible Study Interview Podcast. Let me say that again and offer an explanation. This is the Revelation Bible Study Interview Podcast. Peter and Gordon are each doing their own separate Revelation Bible studies in their churches. Neither one of them knows what the other has been focusing on or the angle they're taking on it or any of those things. And yet here we are to talk about this book slash Revelation slash Dream slash whatever with them. And so therefore it is an interview, me interviewing them about their Bible studies on the book of Revelation. And if you followed that, then credit to you, you are a genius. <laughs> so today we are, once again, uh, Peter and I are joined by Gordon, who is over at First Methodist in Canton. Peter is at two Methodist churches in Canton, Longs and Crusoe Methodist churches, and I am just a Baptist. And here I am uh, talking to them about something. I, I will give you some backstory. I have done Revelation Bible studies in the past. The difference between what they are going through and what I am going through, is, or have been through, is that I don't do Revelation Bible studies with adults. I might at some point in the future when I decide that some adults can handle it. Here's what I mean by that. There's this term that I had to become intimately familiar with in grad school, and that is embedded theology. It's the theologies that... We pick up, and or maybe not whole theologies, but ideas about theology that we pick up over time and we get married to, and we will not change. Students don't have embedded theologies that are so rigid yet. They're more flexible. And so I have done Revelation Bible studies with high schoolers because they're more open to ideas and won't think that you're you know, an apostate because you don't believe what their granddaddies told them 20 years ago. Adults tend to be, and a, a reaction that I have had in conversations with adults, not at this church, but at previous churches, save my career move there, but uh, conversations about Revelation have often ended with, well, you don't really believe, because I didn't believe what they were handed a long time ago. And so, I have it's my cowardice, really. Sure. I have been hesitant to do a Revelation Bible study with adults. So I'm, I'm curious, I'm, I'm kind of anxious to for this opportunity to live vicariously through you. I might eventually do a study um, on this topic at some point in the future, and so maybe I can learn some things from you guys today. But let's jump into the book. Peter is going to read to us from Revelation chapter 1. A revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Christ made it known by sending it through his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the witness of Jesus Christ, including all that John saw. Favored is the one who reads the words of this prophecy out loud, and favored are those who listen to it, by, to it being read, and keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one 
who is and was and is coming and from the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit that is before God's throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn from among the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood who made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and always. Amen. Look, he is coming on the clouds. Every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. This is so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is and was and is coming, the Almighty. Thus ends the word. So, Gordon, this is not a question on your list. By the way, listener, I gave them the questions beforehand because it's Revelation. I mean, you got to. But, Gordon, this is a surprise question. We have heard, and our listeners will hear, the words of the Revelation read by Peter. What does that make us? What? <laughs> it said it right there. We have heard the words of the Revelation read. What does that make us? Uh, a kingdom of priests? Favored. Oh, favored. We are favored. That okay. makes it special. Favored are those who listen. So those of you who have listened to this podcast. Are now favored. Be encouraged, ladies and gentlemen. You are favored. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to skip the first question on our list, but we will come back to it. Because I think in the discussion it might come through anyway. Uh, the first question was, what angle do you take on Revelation? Because everybody has one. So we're going to move to the question number two. And I'm not going to ask either one of you specifically, but to whom is Revelation written? Go ahead. My understanding, and, you, you know, I, I'm, I'm about letting the text speak. Mm -hmm. And so you start out the Revelation with seven letters to seven churches. And I believe that in those seven letters, he's speaking to basically the situation that was going on there in Asia Minor, to the churches that were in Asia Minor. And then the rest of the revelation is kind of addressing back to these churches and trying to explain, okay, this, you know, promises were made. You know, Jesus said, you, if, you know, this will happen if you stay firm to the word and so forth like that. Is it giving? I, my short answer is I think that the rest of Revelation is writing back to these seven churches to comfort them or to shore them up or to give them hope and strength to hang on. And so that's how I tend to approach it. Okay, that's a yeah. very bold take to uh, let the word speak for itself. Go ahead, Peter. Well, uh, I, I agree with Gordon. And in verse 11 of, of, of chapter 1, it says... Um, Write down on a scroll whatever you see, these words are directed to John, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so I think we have to take the scripture at its word when it says that it's, it's addressed to these. I like how my translation talks about the next section, starting with chapter 2, um, and says, and calls what these little blocks messages to the churches because I think there's a tendency to separate 
the messages to the churches from the rest of the book of Revelation. And we have to remember that it is one letter, right? And so you have these, these churches get their separate messages. Right. Their specific themes. But the entirety of the, that, that are not a part of the Revelation. Mm. But they are. They're a part yeah. of the message. And the themes that are raised in them come through in the, in the yes. larger vision. And but that's a good word for it, the larger vision. So, mm-hmm. as the as the larger vision unfolds, they're still a part of this message to these seven churches. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to put a qualifier on what I said. Please though. do. So, the 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 letter is addressed to these seven churches. It's a circulatory letter. That's what you'll hear people scholars talk about it because. It was, you know, scrolls were expensive in that day. You know, you had to conserve your writing. So this this scroll, this this document, was given, uh, was transported somehow from church to church. So each church read the entire scroll in its entirety before passing it on. So everyone heard everyone else's business. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yet seven is an intentional number, I think. There, these churches actually existed. I'm, I'm convinced that these churches actually existed, that they probably had the problems that John is addressing here. He knew them personally, I think, uh, I believe. He served at one of them, wasn't it? Ephesus or something? We can't really I guess so. know. We, we don't know. We can't know for sure, but I'm convinced that he actually did know who he was talking to. Exactly. Uh, and yet seven is a, is a number that has a symbolic meaning. It's a, it's a, it's a number that, that signifies completion. And so I also believe that even though this letter was not written uh, about us today, modern day Christians, it can all, it can speak to us. So in, in the, I had a professor once who, who tried to reinforce that message that scripture is not written about us, but it can speak to us. It's not written to us, but that doesn't mean we can, can't learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Let's talk about... But just really quick, he's right. You know, how many times does the number seven come up throughout Revelation? There's seven bowls, there's seven trumpets, seven seals. angels, seven, seven seals. seals, which, like you say, is a number of completion. It's because of the creation of it. Right. The days of the week. All right, so let me let me jump back into what you were talking about just a second ago, Peter. Sorry. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. But the... Uh, there's so many different questions I had while y'all were talking. Um, but the one I'm going to focus on is these churches, they all have their different problems. Because of canonization, it wouldn't be in the Bible if it wasn't universal enough to be useful, with some exceptions. But um, how, how can we use what we learn, forget the overall revelation that follows, Hmm. But from, don't forget it, but for now, put a pin in it. What can we learn from what these churches are going through? Because some of them got attaboys and some of them got, you better be careful, you know, warnings. Some of them got a mixture of both. What can our churches today learn from what a church was going through in a completely different time, yet that can apply to our current situations? Well, you know... It, they when I like you mentioned teaching adults. So one thing they do is they because like you, I don't believe in truncating. Like this, it, there's a tendency to see the seven letters as some addendum or something. But anyways, I spent a lot of time in the beginning on those seven churches, 
And I could see it in their face, like, well, why are we crawling through these? It's because one of these is us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and then I said, and the challenge is not just to figure out which church, which church we relate to, but which of these talks to you? Mm -hmm. Are you one of these, you know, doing these things that are being talked about? To really kind of let the rest of the letter talk to you, but but you're right. When in the beginning it's like, and I've actually done like a series of sermons on, on, on just the seven churches, to kind of ask the question, which one, are, you know, and and again, that's a hard thing because I'm asking you to be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, do we want to admit we're the Thyatira Church or do we want to admit we're Laodicea? And usually towards the end, I you know, if I was to say, and and then they get a little kind of antsy, but I see most of us I think are Laodicean churches. What do you mean by that? Well, for those that don't have that specific, they're settled into a routine. They're comfortable with where they're at. Um, don't want the the tree shaken, if you will. Uh, want to, to maintain the status quo, if you will. And you know, or as the old saying is, "Ain't no problems here." You know. I think what I understand, or what lesson I le- I learned from these these messages to the churches, is that. It, not just in Revelation, but in all Scripture that we read, our reading is socially located, mm-hmm. meaning that the Scripture cannot necessarily mean this cannot mean the same thing to every Christian who's reading it, or every person indeed who's reading it, because where our social location is, and when I say that, I mean like how much money do we have, how much power do we have in society? You know, are we being oppressed? In what ways are we being oppressed? All of those affect what parts of Scripture we need to listen closest to and should direct how we respond. And so I think I like that these these pretty um, straightforward messages come at the beginning because to me it's, if we don't get that question right that Gordon's asking of which, which church sounds most familiar to us, then I, I think that we'll, we'll have a hard time understanding the rest of the revelation these are lenses provided to the churches this is how you need to read the rest of this document either uh, for for instance Smyrna which is a church that was experiencing hardship was experiencing persecution and doesn't really have any the 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 author John doesn't really have anything negative to say about them if you're if you're reading from the position of Smyrna of an oppressed people group, then perhaps the 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 whole thrust of Revelation is going to be encouragement. Mm-hmm. But if you're reading from the you know perspective of Pergamum, where you know you you've got some influence within the 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 leader, leadership that's uh, that's causing you to kind of go astray, then you need to be more concerned as you read Revelation for what that vision means for you. You may not be the character you thought you were. Yeah, Yeah. and I think that's always healthy. Something that was taught to me in seminary was the practice of reading Scripture against ourselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, Psalms were a good example of this. What are they called? The imprecatory Psalms, the ones that, that level curses at our enemies and a lot of Christians read those and say, oh, I can't, I can't read this. This is terrible. This isn't Christian. But uh, reading scripture against ourselves it invites us to consider what if there's someone out there who is suffering in such a way because of our actions and this is their honest prayer to God. Um, 
that we would be stopped from the vileness that we are performing or whatever, you know, um, that that can help us, I think, to to gain a sense of humility. If we get that far, we'll probably talk about that in question number eight. So uh, as you were talking, I, I did have another thought. One activity we might need to engage in with our churches today is to to imagine, you know, challenge those who are attending your Bible studies or maybe even just lay it out there and see what happens. Have people read the Revelation and then come back and say, you know, the overall Revelation, and then say, okay, if you are John of Patmos, who we haven't talked about much at all, by the way, if you were him and you were writing this to our church, what would the letter to our church say? Mm -hmm. And it'd be interesting to see like a whole group's take on it. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if that will ever happen. If I ever do a study with adults, I probably will do that. It's a hard, it's a hard thing to do, you know. Uh, that they, they say um, it's it's a well, fish fish don't talk most of the time, but it, it would be hard for fish to talk about water. Yeah. And I think John's position um, as uh, imprisoned on the island of Patmos, even though he has pastored or you know been yeah, closely affiliated, perhaps with some of these churches. Uh, the the distance allows him to reflect. Mm-hmm. He's got the what is it called ten thousand foot view or whatever that is. Yeah, the aerial view. But isn't his claim that I'm merely dic- I'm merely described? So I would change your question to say if Jesus was looking at our church, what would he tell John to write about? I'll, I don't know if I'd ask them to put themselves in Jesus' position. Well, no, but I I know, but you see what I'm saying. John is not claiming he wrote this. Mm. True. He's, he's saying this was dictated to him, and but his letters think, to the, the church are from were, Jesus. Didn't, didn't yeah, the they are. The church come before that started, or was that what? no? These are messages from. Uh, it says uh, from Christ. These are these are Christ's words. If you have a red letter Bible, um, these these passages will be read. So it's actually John um, uh, take dictating or Jesus dictating a message to the churches or to the angels of the churches through John. So it's pretty powerful. All right, so we've spent a third of our time already and haven't gotten past the, the churches. No, I'm the one They have to do a secret. I'm doing the interview. You don't apologize to anyone. <laughs> uh, it's my fault because I'm fascinated by well, your opinions. Well, we things. need to dive in then. Take us there. What All do you right. want? Real simple question. What did the Revelation teach you about the Antichrist? <laughs> the book of Revelation, what did it teach you about the Antichrist? <laughs> when Cord asked me this question a couple of weeks ago, I kind of stumbled over my words. It was like, "Well, I haven't, I haven't really, you know, we haven't gotten to that part. I haven't finished the book yet, you know." Um, and I, it turns out that was a good answer because you never will. We never found the Antichrist written about in the book of Revelation. It's not, it's not a word that's used in here. Now, what I told Cord then, and I, and I'll share with you now, is that there are certainly characters in the book of revelation who are acting in a antichristic way they are they are acting in the opposite of christ and they are they are against christ mm-hmm. uh, and we can talk about that those characters but they're not named antichrist in the book of that revelation. was the point i wanted to make okay. because so many people because of cultural things say hey let's learn about the antichrist obviously that's in the book of revelation 
Well, to the but point. It's not. To the point that you've got people out there looking, you know, yes, to identify. Exactly. Well, it's so and so. He's the anti. Well, actually, it says in there this person that's anti-Christian. Everything is going to be glorious and wonderful and well, bring peace. To that point, <laughs> when I did a revelation study with the students of Albemarle, North Carolina, when here I am, I'm supposed to be the interviewer. I'm, I'm providing the information. Share with us. Share with us. I, they all, all kept asking me, okay, where's the Antichrist? I keep looking. And I told them over and over again, you're not going to find him in there. And as we went through it, I said, if you want to force this title to be in there, the thing that is closest to our understanding of the Antichrist is the, the creature that kind of serves as the beast PR guy. Okay? <laughs> I don't remember which creature it was. But it was the one that was smooth talking and, and yet represented, I think it, it, may have not, it may have been the Dragon's PR guy, I don't remember. But it was like, didn't really have much power, just was really good at putting a spin on things. Yeah, it was like he was like a smaller... But the fact remains that a biblical use of Antichrist, that actual word, is not in here. Does not speak to any real uh, prophetic anything. And so why is that, um, I, I want to ask the, the interviewer about the question. Why, okay. why does that, why is it important to um, uh, clarify the fact that the Antichrist is not because in Because it is Revelation? a biblical term. Mm-hmm. And if we continue to let movies guide our understanding of the term, we never get the importance of it. And therefore we're, we're twisting the Bible unintentionally. It is used to describe. I want to say in one of the Peters, but it might have been Hebrews. Yeah, so it's one of the one of the pastoral. Well, not, I mean the general epistles. It is used to describe people who are believers and under persecution they turn away. Mm-hmm. That is what the Bible actually uses the term antichrist for. Now those people are in Revelation, but they're not. It's it's not what movies. And left behind books tell us right. that it is. Exactly. And so I don't know. I I, I kind of like my Bible, and not just mine, but the Bible. Right. And I, I don't want us to to twist it to the point that actual places in the Bible now become useless yeah. because of what we have done with its words. Well, we see this in the Gospel too, where there's a tendency to like want. A consistent narrative that that fits all of the gospel stories together, yeah. and so um, you you see this at Christmas time. There's like just Matthew and Luke and John just mashed together, mm-hmm. in, in and you create this m- master narrative of the the birth of Christ that just cherry picks from each of these gospels. Pre-existence from John, uh, shepherds from Luke. The the Mary uh, and Elizabeth dialogues and all that stuff. Um, so, so, the the problem with that is that each gospel, just like Revelation, was written to a specific audience of Christians, and the, and there was a message, a holistic message of that book trying to be communicated. And when you mash things together, uh, you 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 have a tendency to miss what that message was. And I'm not saying that there's not that that it's always a bad idea to um, look at Jesus from the angles of different gospels. I don't think so. I think it's a great idea. But 
we have to acknowledge that when we do that, we're going to miss the the overall message of a of a gospel that was written to be a standalone. I think that the turning point is you know, it's great to learn the gospel from every perspective. Mm-hmm. When we start assembling, re, or we, when we start amalgamating, 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 yeah, them into one story, we are no longer gospel readers. We are not even gospel, applying to the gospel to our lives. At that point, we are becoming gospel writers or editors, yeah, yeah. Redactors. redactors, redactors, yeah. And so, I mean, that, I think that's where it becomes dangerous. Yeah. And so the same thing is happening with Revelation and some of the more apocalyptic letters, like from Peter and Jude and uh, and um, and maybe even Hebrews, too. Uh, well, if you want to, uh, I guess that we'll get to that when we get into Darbyism. Later. Yeah. Yeah, let's leave that. All right. So what is the most practical idea that you have learned from the book of Revelation? And it, it could be like a sentence that doesn't seem to have to do any, anything to do with anything else. It could be like, you know, I am John of Patmos. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay. That's the most <laughs> practical. Whatever, whatever it is that strikes your fancy. Gordon, you go first. Well, I, I, anyways, the, the, the word I like to use is overarching narrative or theme to me is that the idea is that God wants to hold that door open as long as possible. That it, that it is not his desire that to see anybody go down this road, okay, to, to suffer these fates. I mean, if you when you when I read Revelation, I see constantly it's like he he he's trying to like give them every possible chance to to make to come around. And so to me, it's the even though you read all this stuff, and some people can read all the horror and something, it's a it's a message of hope, of love that he wants you know and and. He's going to give you every possible chance to come to that point. But at some point, and this is the other side of it, is that at some point that door will close. So there's infinite mercy but urgency. Exactly. I think my my takeaway, and I just finished my Bible study on Tuesday. Uh, My my takeaway um, would, would, I'm going to borrow words from Paul to talk about what I think my takeaway is from Revelation and and say that God's war or God's struggle in um, in Revelation is not against flesh and blood but against powers and principalities which humans get suckered into into serving we get mm-hmm. we get pulled in we get we get co-opted by these powers and principalities that are much much greater and much stronger than we can imagine but Revelation is uh, is providing it's provide it's a revealing in any apocalyptic apocalyptic literature. It's the Greek word for a revelation for revealing is intended to reveal God's perspective. So it's going to look a little weird, and our heads won't be able to wrap around it. But I think that what I understand from God's perspective on um, on human history is that humans are the pawns in a game that is being played out in a, in a war that is being waged and um, and when we simplify things and make and, and say individual humans are responsible for missing a whole backstory that God sees mm-hmm. and God's God's purpose God's loving purpose is to save humanity from the powers that are exploiting them what are the what are the exploitative 
powers of our day? Uh, well, I think, you know, to me, through reading Revelation, it's clear that uh, empire in all its forms is one of these exploitative, exploitative powers that when any nation, when any nation sets itself up to be the provider of security, um, to be the provider of uh, protection, to, to be the provider of um, opulence or wealth, and demands allegiance uh, to it, to itself, rather than to God, um, and persecutes those who don't, who don't um, uh, pledge allegiance to it, those nations become beasts. Mm -hmm. And those beasts are against God, necessarily. So there was a time when the United Kingdom was the, the empire. Mm -hmm. And in that time, there was a fellow named John Nelson, Nelson Darby. <laughs> and this was in the mid-19th century. He came up with this idea about what revelation really means hmm. and essentially I'm gonna I'm gonna encapsulate that idea very quickly not encapsulate but give you the, the short version synopsized so the idea is known as dispensationalism and the idea essentially is based on this this I guess metaphor wherein God dispenses. So the, the way a professor taught it once in a class I was in, in in seminary is that if you imagine you have these glasses and God is holding a pitcher of time mm -hmm. and God dispenses or pours out time in these certain glasses or categories. And so he comes up with this idea of dispensationalism. And I don't think that Darby... You know, I, I kind of wish he had never written anything, but I think the, his motivation was good. Mm -hmm. I think his motivation was let's let's try to help these people understand as I do, because I've had this eureka moment. And so, what do you do when you have an idea that you think is good? You go tell people about it. So he comes up with this idea of dispensationalism, and it's it's a fairly complicated. How I've heard it described is that it as far as when we're reading scripture, is that, for instance, the Israelite people in the wilderness received certain knowledge, mm -hmm. but they weren't ready for other knowledge. Yes. And then you follow, you go forward, and then this, like, post-exilic um, Israel received more knowledge, and then, and then eventually Jesus Christ brought um, another dispensation. And not everyone was ready for that, mm -hmm. but, like... But for those who were able to see it, like they, they receive this dispensation, and that those dispensations keep coming throughout history. Yeah. And which is interesting because then Muhammad picked that up. Yeah, yeah, that's true as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know that we were going to go there. No, I just I'm wanted to fine with that. Well, let me take it even further and say that dispensationalism has been a very popular uh, uh, belief structure, or I guess interpretive method. Hermeneutic. Hermeneutic in the South because the because the American Civil War from a Southern perspective was painted as a holy war in yeah. a way. And and people who who lost that and their descendants who lost that war um, were were in a were in a period of disarray and were That's trying to make meaning. So as he 
comes up with the, these different dispensations of time. Mm-hmm. It kind of play. It, it went beyond where the canon closed and the Bible that we know today. It, it was beyond that. In fact, the dispensations are continuing to go mm-hmm. or to to be dispensed. Mm-hmm. And so he wrote this in the mid to late 1800s. The Civil War. He didn't write it in America. But it got here about the time that the Civil War, like Peter mentioned, was ending. And one side lost. And the other side had still suffered great damage. And so really it took hold in America between the Civil War and World War One, In these times where people were just grasping for meaning. Mm-hmm. And many of us saw, Americans, saw these or this understanding of the way God dispenses time and events as a way to apply these things to our life and say, oh, we're living through this now. And that means that this will be coming. Mm -hmm. So if we're living through X, then Y is coming because as I read Revelation, it goes in the order of X and Y. And so it became very popular. And in this dispensational, well, well, not in it, but what we've done to this dispensationalist theory is we we apply this term rapture to it mm-hmm. and the question then becomes do you believe the rapture comes before this millennial period after this millennial period or not at all and so then you get these terms premillennial dispensationalist amillennial, amillennial dispensationalist and postmillennial dispensationalist yeah, so I want to bring it back to the scripture because I feel like we could go down the the rabbit hole of dispensationalism actually, forever. I just wanted to explain it. But, but yeah, well, I think there's actually more to be explained there. But the where this where it hinges with scripture is on this. Um, I think it's near the end. I think it's in chapter seventeen or eighteen when the when the 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 great uh, the the dragon who's referred to as the the old that old snake or satan uh, is locked away for a thousand years and then he must be released for a time and christ reigns for a thousand years that'd be the millennium that would be the millennium right and my my issue with that is that there's so many numbers in revelation (laughs) why fixate on a thousand years to you know because it seems like a very real understanding or a very literal interpretation of that number mm-hmm. you know um, whereas other numbers are treated as symbolic or maybe you know I guess it's possible that some people try to take all those numbers literally but to me a thousand years in scripture in, in scripture usually just means a long time yeah um, and so I try not to work myself up too much about it I mean you just think if 40 years often means a long time a yeah. thousand a really long time yeah yeah to, to kind of t- turn us back around, this, this whole dispensationalism and everything is then reversed and then now placed on the letters. Mm-hmm. Well, this church represents this epic. This church represents this e- and really torture the daylights out of it to get them to fit. And then so we're, we're now in the Laodicean period, you know what I mean? Yeah, and what, what often happens when you do that, I wasn't going to bring that up, but we had, we had a Bible study <laughs> here that I did not lead. It was a Sunday school class. And I went downstairs one day. They met downstairs. And people liked it, and it was fine, whatever. But 
they had this list of what the letters to the churches really mean. Hmm. Air quoting, really. And it was what you're talking about. That, you know, this church's letter described this dispensation. Mm-hmm. They didn't say dispensation, they said period or epic. And, and so that was the first time I'd really seen it written out like that. And to get there, they had to pick and choose, like, like this verse from Revelation coupled with this verse from Daniel and this one from Ezekiel proves to us that that this is the way it is. And I think if you have to do that many somersaults, I believe that if God is going to reveal something to us, it's not going to take that much work to get there. Otherwise, it's not much of a revelation. Mm-hmm. It's a quest. Let me try to add, put some clarity into this pre-millennial, post-millennial thing and pick up where I was talking about with the Civil War. So um, you had two sides of the war, North and South. South lost, North won. And you've got uh, millennial, uh, or I guess it's called dispensationalism, coming about at the same time. And, and, and theologians on both sides of the conflict um, grasp, um, just clung to this the, this this theology or this concept of dispensationalism to explain the events of their time. Mm-hmm. In the South, what happened is that this this holy war of righteousness, of defending states' rights, of like um, what was lost, and so it allowed white Southern Christians to paint themselves as the persecuted, and the con- and so they read themselves into Revelation in that way. And the con- and, and the thought was, well. Uh, we just have to endure. Mm-hmm. We have to endure for a time until Christ comes because we've learned that we've tried to make the world the way it should be, but we can't do it without Christ's power. And so premillennialism is this concept that in order for the millennium, the time to start on that millennium before um, the new Jerusalem descends, Jesus has to come back and reign. Mm-hmm. That's his, he arrives premillennium. And so the theology that emerges from the South with dispensationalism is this idea that we have to wait for Christ to come. And then when, because we are, too, we are too flawed as human beings to figure it out. Um, that's the state of the world right now. It's a very depressing outlook. Uh, but Christ will come and we will pray for his return. But we really don't have that much to do except for to endure until that happens. Yeah. Um, on the other side, in the north, there was this uh, understanding that the Civil War was a holy war too because we were liberating people from, ensla- from enslaved- enslavement. We are liberating people from slavery. So we human beings have uh, dealt a, 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 a terrible blow to the forces of darkness in this world that are causing people to be enslaved, that are causing oppression. So we, the people of the North, are these holy warriors who have actually made a big dent in the forces of evil in this world by liberating enslaved peoples. And so um, we see dispensationalism in the North as something that um, we we see it post-millennial, meaning that the world has to purify itself for a thousand years and then Christ will return. So it's up to us to do the work to make the world ready for Christ to return. And that's post-millennialism. So you see that there's uh, much more emphasis in post-millennialism and 
generally speaking, in northern Christian um, uh, churches on this emphasis of doing good works, of being the, the, the light on the hill, of like, of finding a way to reform and to, to, to save the world and to uplift the poor and the oppressed. Whereas in the South, there's a more pessimistic view um, of like, well, we just have to endure for a longer time. And when Christ comes, he will make everything right. But both sides, I think, are reading way too much into this concept of dispensationalism. And, and honestly, I don't, I, don't, I don't fit myself in either of those two camps. I, don't think, yeah, I think it's overly simplistic to, to reduce this, to, to take this number of thousand as literally a thousand years and to expect that it's supposed to fit, you know, perfectly onto the 20th and 21st, 19th, 20th and 21st centuries. Yeah. You know, I think it's way, way too reductive to do so. But you can see that as a result of that, uh, terrible war, uh, in which brothers were fighting against brothers, that uh, that people would come away looking for some kind of explanation that they could read in the Bible, and this is what they this is what they clung to. Yeah, and we did the same thing in World War Two and World War One, um, maybe in Korea. I don't know. Not in the actual conflicts, but as a result of the conflicts. Yeah, Gordon. Well, it's just if you want to see do something interesting, then delve into Zionism, and they are dealing with the same exact struggle do we wait till the messiah comes and then he builds the temple or do we is he waiting for us to build the temple mm. and then we've got the whole issue of the temple grounds and the whole issues in the middle east and that same idea of like is he waiting for us to clean it up before he comes or is he going to come and clean it up and it's well here's my response to both dispensationalism and zionism and also you can have a zionist dispensationalism but um, my response to both of these ideas and really my response to the revelation of John mm -hmm. is that there's nothing wrong with blooming where you're planted we, we don't have to who am I? Am I going to single handedly make XYZ happen? No but God put me here for a reason mm -hmm. so but don't you see the subtlety of that shift right? Once again it takes the power from God and kind of places it on us. Yes. He's waiting for us. Yeah, it makes us God. You know, and yeah. Yeah, I think I think the 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 way forward for um, Christianity is to find uh, is to find some middle ground between the two positions in which we we expect and we long for and we pray for Christ's return. And we 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 pray for Christ's presence with us today, right now, and to empower us to do good while we have the, while we have time to do so. Which is another way of saying, bloom where you're planted. Bloom where you're planted. All right, so I came up with this question while, while Peter was talking about it. I'm not going to ask Peter. I'm going to ask Gordon. I talked a lot, so. That's fine. Nine. What does Revelation teach us about our understanding of heaven? Mm -hmm. This is not on the list. Sorry about that. <laughs> is versus well, okay so I'll just give you my thing on this okay so that's all we want it, it, well I'm weird that way but why you're here man so imagine if you will like and I'll just kind of so if you're familiar with Merkavot mysticism or Kabbalah and all that other stuff they have this idea that as you learn 
certain meditations, you pass through different levels, there's an angel. Anyways, so their idea is that at some point you're going to reach heaven. So let's say I, I, I enter into the Kabbalism and I enter into the throne room of God and I'm actually there. Then how do I come back and explain what I saw? You see, because that's where like language runs into like John's trying to describe, you know, whether you want to argue he didn't see it. Anyways, he saw something. And had to try to find a way to describe something that's beyond, like you say, supernatural and, and, and using words and getting, for, you know, one of my things when I used to give Christians a hard time is they say, I'd say, well, you know, I, heard, I was at church and then this happened and I was in front of him. What did you hear? What did he sound like? Was it your voice? Did he sound like blah, blah, blah? In other words, and this poor person would try to describe something that you can't until it happened to me. And then it's like, people, well, what happened to you? You know, so what I'm saying is, is that, that I, 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 would like to believe there is a, that he well i had a seminary professor who claimed he spent three days there really okay? yeah he did he said he was there for a couple of days and stuff like that but i think that like you know, i like to tell people i think that it won't we wouldn't be able how do i put this it won't be anything like we'd imagine mm -hmm. and we won't have the language to even it would just be like you know how do you describe this and uh, so, so gordon your response to mercy means i can only imagine is no you can't no you couldn't even possibly okay. It wouldn't even be close. Peter, what do you think? Yeah, I, th I agree with Gordon. I mean, language falls short. And so we see not just in the apocalypse of John, but the apocalypse of, um, uh, of uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel, when that, that is to say when they're in the throne room of God, uh, struggling for language. Mm -hmm. Isaiah tends to, to just say, give, give it his best guess. Yeah. You know, and just describe it as is. He, but but Ezekiel, you'll notice if you read uh, Ezekiel in the throne room, he's he's much more tentative with his language. It appeared like a chariot, but there was it was different somehow. It it appeared to be glowing or with wings, but you know it was not quite. You know, yeah. so there's this tentative language because the truth is, no matter whose revelation we're listening to, our human language can't describe it, uh, describe the, the throne room of God. Uh, and, you know, you, you hear Gordon and I talking about the throne room of God because w when you use that word heaven with the book of Revelation, you got to kind of, you got to kind of do a little bit of, uh, you kind of got to make a glossary because what, what, what most Christians think about when they talk about heaven, words and language that they use are not necessarily pulled from Revelation. They could be coming from other books of the Bible. What we hear about in Revelation is the throne room of God and also the New Jerusalem. Y'all both went to the throne room. When I asked the question, I was really asking about the New Jerusalem. Okay. Yeah, yeah because it, you, you kind of have to, well, it's like kind of what does that word heaven mean? And mm -hmm. for Christians today, oftentimes we think about, and these words are in Scripture. I don't want to deny that. Pearly gates. And streets of, streets gold, of gold, right? Um, and and this, this concept that, that heaven is somewhere above us, outside. And, and for, you know, ancient Christians and Jewish people, that was the sky. Yeah. But now that we've had space travel and we've gone and we fly in the skies with airplanes, we've noticed that we didn't run into heaven or pearly gates or gold Yet. streets. So then the tendency, because we keep assuming that heaven is somewhere above us, is to push heaven further and further away and say, oh, it must be 
somewhere out in space somewhere or in another galaxy or another universe or something like that. Parallel universe. Yeah. But I think that's I think what we're doing is actually contrary to the message of scripture, especially in the New Testament, because Jesus is coming here. He says the kingdom of heaven is among you. Mm-hmm. Right? The idea is not that in our midst. that heaven is above us and further and further away and i think we see that in scripture in in revelation in the last chapters 21 for example that um that that the hope that the vision that we hope for is that the new jerusalem uh where everything has been made new uh, the new creation will come down to earth the 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 the, 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 the proper or the the specific words here from 21 verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more and there will be no more mourning crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away so to me what heaven means is god with us yeah see what the reason i ask the question is because so many people take that description of the new jerusalem mm. and they say well that must be a description of heaven i can't wait to get there mm. or one day I'll get there, but not today. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of it is that it's what God intends for here mm-hmm. in our midst. Yeah. And so instead of just saying, well, one day things will be great, why aren't we thinking, okay, God, how can I be involved in what you're trying to build that's great here? Mm. It could be so encouraging so, if we would allow it to be. So we, which takes us back to Exodus. When we were in the garden, mm-hmm. I mean Genesis, Genesis. when we were okay. in the garden and we, we walked with God and talked with God and, and everything was beautiful and we didn't have to do all this stuff. until and, and to me, that picture of the new Jerusalem isn't so much about buildings and streets and everything. But like you said, that 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 separation isn't there anymore. That that we're with God. And, yeah. and, and what could be more beautiful than that? Mm-hmm. And to be restored and to not have these beasts and these oppressions and these empires and everything and to live in just complete harmony. I mean, yeah. I, you know, and I, I'm like you, I, I've seen pictures where people have like tried to take the, the distances and measure them out. I've seen paintings of, of things and so forth like that. But really just wanted to go back to what he said about the thousand and stuff is that that in there it talks about the, the 12 tribe, the 12, the 144,000. Mm-hmm. Well, to our minds, we can kind of picture that. But in those days, a thousand was about as far to them. That was like a Google. And see, we today have come he's up with... He's not talking about the website. He's talking about the number. The number. But, but again, like I was pointing out in, to the group, I said, we've had to come up with new numbers. You know, we had to come up with uh, uh, terabytes and petabytes and Googles and all that thing and to come up with a number bigger than we can conceive. So these numbers, I, I don't think are meant to be taken literally. It's more as that this was as big as my mind. It's bigger than what my mind. And, and so, like I said, I've seen paintings where they've taken and show this cube in space of, of the, you know, the so forth and so forth. I'm like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> really? John is asked to measure the, the New Jerusalem in, in terms of its height and width and depth. And, and yeah, so some people take those measurements very literally and they try to they imagine that you know they they allow 
the limits of language to limit their vision of heaven. And to which that is one of the things I struggle with. People ask me, "What's hey preacher? What's heaven going to be like?" I guess to have my title, I should have an answer. Mm. But my answer is usually, I don't. I try to think of heaven mm-hmm. because whatever I can conjure only limits it. Right. And actually, what I say, forgive me, is when I can when I imagine heaven, all I'm doing is making it crappy for myself. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Anyway, yeah. And so when we when we try to take these things and put them in ways we can understand it, that's natural. Mm-hmm. But if we don't admit that we're limited to our human understanding, what we are really doing is putting limits on God. Mm-hmm. If you say, well, the New Jerusalem is X Y Z feet long, and I, well, I don't know how many people God can cram in there, but it's not that many. Which means only, only I think we, we generally settle on the 144,000. Only that many people are going to be in heaven. Are you serious? <laughs> right. The beauty of this not being a temporal escape, but instead being a recreation, is that if the earth will hold it, and I'm not even going to limit God there, but if God wants something to be involved, it can be. Mm-hmm. And so we don't put limits on God. I'm going to move on to another question because we're running out of time. And we will not get all of our questions asked. So if you have a question for Gordon or Peter, then try to get in touch with us and maybe we'll talk about it in an in a upcoming show. But I want to end with one question. It's a question I alluded to earlier, which is question number eight or seven. No, it is eight. You had to put these in Roman numerals, didn't you? I did. Did you struggle with those? <laughs> yes. I didn't know that. Well, I when I go on micro, on, on, on yeah, Apple's it, pages it, and I hit heaven. the number thing, I always do Harvard because I like Harvard. So it's always not the school, but the, the, the outline. Okay. Anyway, so now that's not a part of the Revelation discussion. Roman numeral eight. Why should it matter to us that God faced off against empires of the past? Again, I want to start with Gordon. See, to me, this one of the 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 thing that that's a, I'll try to explain. A beautiful about Revelation is the fact that that and it used to bother me. You know, like you mentioned, Darby. How many people in the past? I mean, I've had people that have sat down and literally rolled out scrolls of timelines and places and dates and this and that. And I look at that and I go, but you could do that for World War One. They did it. You could do, mm-hmm. which to me then speaks to the fact that of the universality of our condition. And the universality of our hope. That, like you said, we're trapped in these systems, but that there is a spiritual power, that there is spiritual things going on, that, that we need that hope to know that, you know, like, for example, like I love when, uh, I think it was Titus or whatever, that rolled through and got rid of the Babylonians and the, the, the Roman general. No, he was the one no, that destroyed no, 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 the no. temple. He took out the temple. Well, the, the Cyrus. Cyprus, Cyrus. It was Cyrus. And he rolled through and he says, I just don't like Babylonians, but I, I, I don't care about the real estate. And they uh, said, well, God, how come this guy? And God said, I use who I will. Cyrus was a Persian. Not yeah, he was a, okay. Persian. a Persian. But but my idea being is that God explained to them that the forces of earth, there's no one power. I run all of this. Mm-hmm. And whether the President of the United States knows it or whether Putin knows it or any of the people know it. It's Timely like, reference. Go ahead. It, but it's like they still feel like they're doing their own purposes, but there's another purpose at work and that God can and will work through them. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Yeah. And that, that to me is is like just the beauty of it, that even the empires are just something we decided and that God can and will and does work through them. Yeah. But I think it's important to know that me, I can't stand up to all this stuff that's going on, but he can. 
Yeah. And that's one of the things that I reminded people all the way through the pandemic is that, you know, we're frustrated, but we're not running the show. Mm-hmm. And, and, more, and you said God can and will work through them. And, and that is true. And, but I think as I read Revelation, I see that more often than not, it's, uh, it's the, 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 the dragon that works through empires. Uh, but, but Christ is ultimately victorious. I think that's the hope. Uh, Christ and Christ's army, um, who, are, who are the saints and the martyrs. As we look at the overarching narrative of the Bible, you know, it doesn't start there, but, but I'm going to start there. But you have the, the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. They're the big empire. Mm-hmm. God overpowers them and sets the people free. You have the Assyrians. Assyrians who we mentioned earlier, Cyrus, mm-hmm. comes in. What do they call him? A Messiah. Sets some people free. Um, well, that's after the Babylonians, right there. So then you have the Babylonians. Mm-hmm. God not, not, not thrilled with them throughout, and the people are set free. So over and over again, it's set the faithful free from the empire. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the Greeks in the Apocrypha during the Maccabean saga and the Romans in the New Testament. And so, you know, because we haven't stopped our hunger for power and influence, our desire to tr- control even people far away from us, which is what empire is all about, our, our hunger for resources, even those that belong to others, I feel like that may be one of the most applicable parts of the book of Revelation, this idea that there's the Empire and there's God. That's why Star Wars was such a hugely su- successful movie, one of the many reasons. But Use the Force, Luke. Well, there's that, but but what do they keep talking about? The Empire. Right. The Empire, the Empire, the Empire. Why? Because throughout hi- human history, that's always loomed. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact of the matter is, today, we are one of those empires. Mm-hmm. And so getting back to what Peter said way earlier in this we at some point have to learn to read scripture against ourselves mm-hmm. not just not because God's out to get us but to understand that as representatives of not only God but also the empire we need to make sure we're not exploiting people we're not engaged in the same abuses that the empire is Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of fun because it freaked them out a little bit when I started, like these Bible studies. I said, you know, the Romans didn't think they were bad people. No. And many people welcomed the Romans. They brought the Pax Romana. They brought roads and everything. And they welcomed the Greeks you before know? them. Yeah. If you were to talk to the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar City was like an eighth wonder of the world, and they would not see themselves that way. And they're like, yeah, and I will, yeah, and we don't see ourselves that way. Oh, you sprung it on them like yeah. that? Wow. Yeah, see? Mm-hmm. So in, in, the, in the Bible, are we the Pharisees? Sadducees, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, so, so what I learned about empire um, in the in Revelation, or the message that I get, is that Christians, um, we, what we need to do is focus on um, the work that, it, that that is set before us, the, um, and, and not worry too much. I, I I don't think that there's a call in Revelation for us to be part of overthrowing the empire. But we need to understand to the extent to which we are being co-opted and exploited by empire, and try to step out of that. You know, in in the um, 
I think it's the 16th chapter, God calls his people out of the empire before the, the great battle, before the destruction, trying to save as many as possible. Like Gordon said, the door closes, but there's, God's waiting for the last possible moment. The, some of the trippy stuff in Revelation comes near the end. Um, and, uh, you know, we've talked about different empires. Well, Babylon is represented as a prostitute or a whore, depending on your translation, drunk on the blood of the saints and martyrs, according to chapter 17, verse 6. And she's riding a beast. And then the angel explains this, this, uh, this vision. He says, why are you amazed? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that carries her, the beast you saw, blah, 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 blah. And then you get down, um, and it says that, uh, you know, he's talking about these horns and these heads, and it says, these kings will be of one mind. Uh, they will, the ten kings are the ten horns. These kings will be of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, and they will make war on the lamb. The lamb will emerge victorious. And then it says, the waters you saw, the woman was above, the, the whore was above our peoples. And the ten horns that you saw and the beast will hate the, the, the whore, and they will destroy her and strip her bare. So the, the, the beast is, is an empire. The whore is an empire. And they're at each other's throats. And they used to work together, and then, they, and then all of a sudden one is destroying the other. Mm-hmm. Where are Christians in this? Lined up behind Christ in white, ready to be sacrificed, ready to be martyred, ready, ready to die in self-sacrificial love for their enemies. I think the message here in chapter 17 is um, it, it, it's not worth it to get involved in trying to tear down the empire to bear arms, physical arms against empire, because empires destroy themselves. Yeah. When economic forces and military forces turn against one another, they tear themselves apart. And that's what we're seeing in, for example, if we want to take a, a modern-day example, that's what we're seeing in Burma or Myanmar, right? The, uh, the military coup has taken over, and the economic forces of protest and, and, and general strike are tearing, it, they're tearing the country apart. I don't think that's a good thing. I think the bloodshed is something that, that Christ yeah, it, it weeps over. It always has victims. It always it has victims. victims. And Christ is the one who takes the side of those who are being crushed under the wheels of empire. Yeah. That was a very, very heavy place to end, but I'm still going to end there because we've been speaking for an hour and two minutes. It seems like there's a lot to talk about in Revelation. There is. I, I, I was excited for this podcast. And we haven't even gotten to how we led our Bible studies, which I'm still curious about. Okay, let's, let's one more question, and this hopefully will lighten the mood. But, you know... I'll let you ask it because you're the one that's curious about it. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, Gordon, I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I guess I want to know how did the idea to start the Revelation Bible study happen and how have you tried to guide the conversation as you've been doing this? Well, you know, when we when they finish one Bible study, you know, and you say, well, what would you like to do next? It's always, oh, Revelation and stuff. And I could see that they were expecting... Uh, the usual charts and graphs and diagrams and so forth like that. And uh, I think right now they're kind of trying to catch up with that because to me, I take it from a, a, let's chew the text. Let's see how do these images and symbols talk to you? Um, How do you relate to them? And it's been very difficult to get them to engage in the discussion. Uh, 
but I think one of the things that's kind of blowing them away is that they that so many times they've given it a cursory reading or they let somebody else do the work, and then they're sitting there and going, "Well, I never looked at that before. You know, I never saw like the tiebacks to the other churches or." Uh, you know what? What are the the symbols of the the incense rising, and then and then using the very protest of the saints to bring on the earth, you know, and saying, "Wow, you know." And when you look at this, the vindicating. So they're just kind of sitting there. So I like to, I guess, because I the English lit in me. It's like you know, I like to walk through there, and so right now I think they're just kind of like, "Wow, I've never looked at it that way before." Right. Let scripture be scripture and, and, and not try to uh, drag up too much meaning that's already been put onto it, but right. just allow it to speak to Let us. Let the text speak. There's yeah. a very good book uh, written by one of the professors at Gardner-Webb Seminary, and his name is Robert Canoy. It's called Atonement in the Apocalypse, an Exposé of the Defeat of Evil. It's really good. It does not... He, he may cover some of what dispensationalism is, but it, it, it's very biblically focused, and um, I recommend it. But he, he's the systematic theolo- theology professor there. You, didn't answer, you need to answer your own question. How did well, you come about with this idea to study Revelation, and how are you doing? You know, very similarly. Uh, and I think it's funny that Gordon and I started as pastors here just, in Canton at the, the same, same time. Exact time yeah. And all of a sudden we're leading a Revelation Bible study because folks in the church asked for it. And I think because it's a mystery. Mm. But the problem is I'm not going to explain the mystery. Well, you should. There's t- and there's, it's maybe not possible. There's so many no, images. Maybe not possible. And, and symbols in this in this text that that I, I don't think it's possible to completely get it. And remember, when we talk about revelation, we're talking about revealing God's perspective on human history. Mm-hmm. If anyone thinks that we can understand God's perspective, it's uh, a pretty arrogant place to be. Yeah. So, so in the same way, I, I feel that any uh, any revelation Bible study I lead will be a disappointment for some people, and mm-hmm. I've had to make my peace with that. But uh, yeah, we've tried to let the text speak. Well, thank you all for your time. For, for Pastor Potluck, I'm Court Green. And I'm Peter Constantian. We've been joined by Gordon Pike. And we appreciate you being here. I applaud these guys. It's a, it's a very intimidating. It's not necessarily a hard topic to discuss, but it is very intimidating. And you guys have handled it wonderfully and let me sit behind the computer and not have to take any risks and put my neck out. So I love you all for that. Peace. Peace.